Father, we are convinced of this. You have revealed yourself in a book. There was a divine desire behind that divine revelation. You desire to make yourself known to us. So we come to Revelation 14 with that foundation. It is your desire to make yourself known through this chapter. We have not plunged the depths of your character. We are aware of this. We know Revelation 14 reveals truths about you that we desperately need to comprehend. Would you, by your spirit, give us comprehension? Now, now your saints throughout the ages have disagreed on the minor details of this chapter. The timing, the identification of certain groups. But you didn't give us this text to start an argument. You gave us this text to bring us to our knees. Help us to walk away with deep-seated confidence that your character was revealed and it dropped us to our knees. Father, you know our hearts better than we do. So you know why we need to see your character today. We have grown cold. Our hearts are iced over. Would you melt the ice jam and start the inward affections flowing again? This is our corporate plea. Amen. Church, we got a lot of work to do. And I don't have time to mess around. So let's get after it. Here's what I have for you today. Three visions and three truths. Chapter 14 is made up of three separate visions. Each vision is introduced by the same phrase. Then I looked. Three words in English, two words in the Greek. Kai harao. Verse 1, kai harao. Verse 6, kai harao. Verse 14, kai harao. In English, verse 1, then I looked. Verse 6, then I looked. Verse 14, then I looked. Translators in the ESV were, con were not consistent translating that phrase. They translate the first and third, I looked, and the middle one, I saw. All three are kai harao and should be translated, I looked. I want us to take an a, a, a overview here of the three visions. Vision one, the victorious lamb celebrating. Vision two, the multilingual preachers flying. You're going to enjoy that one. Vision three, the grim reapers harvesting. The victorious lamb celebrating, the multilingual preachers flying, the grim reapers harvesting. Each vision teaches the same three truths. I will walk through the visions first, then I will gather up everything each vision says about the three truths. I'll backload the three truths and give them to you at the end. If this is your first Sunday with us, I'm sorry, I don't have time to slowly wade into the waters. We're just going to jump into the deep end. You hold on through the three visions, and once we get to the three truths at the end, it will, it will click for you. I'll be fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to teach this text. You be fully dependent on the Holy Spirit to receive this text. Non-Christians, this could not be a better Sunday for you to be with us. You need this text. You say, Kyle... You don't know what I need. <laughs> you don't know me. I don't have to know you. 
I know the Bible. And it's not by chance that you're here for this chapter in one of the most confusing books of the Bible. This is a divine appointment. Each of these three visions takes John's breath away. And may each vision take our breath away. The first vision, the victorious lamb celebrating. God's word begins in verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now church, let's answer three questions. Where does this take place? Who is in it? And what are they doing? First, where does this take place? It takes place on Mount Zion. Now, are we to think of literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem? No. Apocalyptic literature often uses geographical references like it uses numbers. Apocalyptic literature uses geographical references as theological idioms. If you scan the Bible, you would find that Zion is not a monolithic concept. Sometimes it refers to an actual mountain, sometimes to the Lord himself, and sometimes to the people of God. Here, it's speaking of New Jerusalem. Our first vision takes us into eternity, the new heaven and the new earth. This vision is a peek into the future. The everlasting Zion is finally here. Second, who is in it? The leading actors in this drama are already familiar to us. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. The Lamb standing as though slain. He's the only one who could open the seals and he's the only one who can redeem the lost. There is high Christology in this vision. The 144,000 are those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The number, of course, is symbolic, not literal. These are the redeemed of all the ages. 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000, the full number of God's redeemed. The point is this, not one is lost. All the redeemed are present. We were introduced to this group in chapter 7. And we saw each of them receive God's mark, his seal. He marked them on their foreheads and on their right hands. It was not a visible mark. It was a spiritual mark. He marked them out for protection. He marked them out as his own. The seal protected them from falling away, from apostatizing, from not making it. Verse 1 is the fulfillment of God's promise. All the sealed are here. All those with God's mark made it. The, Lord, the Father chose them. The Son died for them. And the Spirit sealed them. Dear Christian, do not forget this is a peek into the future. You are here. You are in the 144,000. How did you get here? The mark. The seal. God gave perseverance to his saints. No matter where tomorrow takes you, you will ultimately end up here. God never sealed one that didn't make it. They stumbled, they fell, they cried, they struggled, but they made it. There are moments when their faith failed, but his seal never failed. 
There are days I pray, God, if you don't keep me, I will not be kept. They didn't make it because they were sinless. They made it because the lamb was sinless. You're going to make it. The divorce will be terrible. The death of loved ones will hurt. The persecution will seem unbearable. But you're going to make it. Some of you, I know you well. And I know your personality. You doubt everything. You doubt it if that's the one you were supposed to marry. You doubt every decision you've ever made in life. You're a doubting Thomas. Here's the good news. Even the doubting Thomases make it. God doesn't lose one that he's marked. What are they doing? Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. <laughs> John, John doesn't have anything that's a one-to-one -one comparison for the sound coming from the 144,000. So he says the word like three times. It's like the roar of many waters. The, the rumbling, the Niagara Falls rumbling. It, it's like the sound of thunder. It's loud, crashing. It's like the sound of harpist harping. The harp was an instrument of joy and victory. The harp was a happy instrument. Uh, do you remember Psalm 137? Uh, the Israelites were, were captive in the land of Babylon and they lost their song. There was no joy, no gladness, no celebration. So they hung up their happy instruments, hung their harps on the willow trees. This sound surrounding the lamb is loud and it is joyful. The author is signaling all those people of God who died in Babylonian captivity waiting for the promise. They pick up their harps once again around the, around the lamb. This is always an instrument celebrating victory. John uses three similes to get across the air of celebration. The 144,000 are gathering around the Lamb with swelling joy in their souls. They gather around to celebrate their champion. After David killed Goliath in the Old Testament, God's people were on a hill gathered around their champion. Here we have the final David, the true and better David. And all God's people through all God's ages gather around on a hill to celebrate him. Verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They are, they are celebrating. And one of the ways they're celebrating is by singing. The supporting cast in this drama are not new to us the four living creatures, and the 24 elders. They are high-ranking angelic beings. They celebrate the Lamb's ultimate victory over Satan. You may remember from last week the unholy trinity that gathered to oppose the Lamb. They have been put down. Creation has reached its intended end. The Lamb is being worshipped. Now, it's interesting to me. That majestic, sinless angels could not sing this new song. 
Angels look into the mystery of salvation with longing. They drop their jaws at what God has done with the redeemed. Angels who need no forgiveness can't sing this new song. Only the forgiven sing it. All the 144,000 sing. Even those who hated music class in high school. Even those who were mute on earth. This is a picture of you, Christian. You will be singing this new song. Our faith is a singing faith. Now, do not forget, this was a letter written to seven local churches facing persecution. They are crying now. Jesus says you'll be singing later. The 144,000 are then further identified by three distinguishing features. They are introduced each time by the same demonstrative pronoun. These. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. First, these did not defile themselves with women. They are virgins. So let's unpack this. Is John suggesting that only males enter heaven and only celibate males at that? No. Sometimes the Bible refers to all believers in a feminine way and sometimes it refers to all believers in a masculine way. We are the bride of Christ and he is the husbandman. That's referring to all believers in a feminine way. Here, we are all men who have not defiled ourselves with women. That's referring to all of us in a masculine way. This is apocalyptic literature. Without understanding that, you could come away with some dangerous conclusions. It's saying that these 144,000 were covenantally faithful. They did not whore around with the world. Using the metaphor used later in the book of Revelation, they did not commit adultery with the whore of Babylon. They remain spiritually monogamous. It's presenting all God's people as men and this world as a woman, the whore of Babylon. In the Old Testament, giving your allegiance to other gods was referred to as spiritual harlotry. Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1. This is not referencing celibacy. God's people are often spoken of as the virgin daughter of Zion. It's that way in Isaiah 23. This is symbolic celibacy. They were not physically virgins, but spiritually virgins. The, the, the point is, not that they aren't males, or not that they are males or, or all men. Or, it means they kept themselves pure. Paul's desire for the church at Corinth proved true. 2 Corinthians 11. I desire to present, present you as pure virgins to Christ. We fast forward into the future here. And they were. These did not defile themselves with women. They are virgins. The second demonstrative pronoun. These follow the lamb wherever he goes. This is the language of discipleship. Taken straight out of the gospels. These 144,000 followed the lamb unswervingly. They never gave allegiance to the world. 
They did not compromise. The third demonstrative pronoun, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. First fruits in the Old Testament were specifically set apart and devoted to God. It's the language of offering. These 144,000 offered their lives. Now, who is reading this vision? The original readers were the seven local churches in the Roman Empire. And they were among the 144,000. See, this is a gentle reminder to them, do not whore around with the world and follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, that's the ancient readers who are the modern readers. You. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, you are among the 144,000. And this is a reminder for you, do not defile yourself with this world. And follow the lamb wherever he goes. God is telling them and us, you don't drift toward godliness. It's a conscious decision every day. Never give up resisting Satan. It's never better to join the world. You will have a price to, to pay, but you will do it in the name of fidelity to the gospel. We are now leaving the first vision and entering the second vision. It's introduced by Kai Harao. Then I looked. The phrase is not just used in chapter 14, but all throughout the book of Revelation. It's a signal that you are to leave that vision and start a brand new vision. The two visions are not chronological or picking up where the other left off. The first vision had all the redeemed in heaven. The second vision backs up the timeline. It's before God's people are in heaven. The second vision is chronologically before the first vision. Let's look at the second vision. The multilingual preachers flying. Who are these preachers? And how are they flying? And why isn't your preacher flying? <laughs> Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. There are three preachers in this vision and they are all angels. Each one is flying in the skies above in middle heaven. They have leverage to reach the crowd below. They are speaking down to the earth. To whom is this angel preaching? He's not preaching to the church. This proclamation is made to non-believers. We see again the phrase, those who dwell on the earth. Earth dwellers. That's John's stylized way of referring to you, non-Christians. All nations and languages understand this sermon. He's a multilingual preacher. All 7,000 languages receive this message. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The first angel is preaching the gospel. This is not a gentle invitation. This is not a gentle gospel invitation. This is a command. The gospel is a command, not merely an invitation. 
I'm not sure we are giving full weight to the gospel when we only refer to it as an invitation. It is a command. And there are consequences if you don't obey the command. This angel commands, worship the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the salt sea and the fresh waters. Now we see the second preacher flying, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Beloved, are we to think of literal Babylon? I don't think so. Literal Babylon fell 600 years ago at the time of this writing. It was nothing more than a little dusty village. It was no longer significant. What do you mean, angel, that Babylon has fallen? You're preaching this message about 600 years too late. Remember, friend, this is apocalyptic literature. We have God's message communicated through symbols. Babylon still stood as the Old Testament symbol for the wicked world system. Babylon was code word for pagan powers oppressing God's people. Babylon stood for the current political, commercial, and religious powerhouse, which for the first readers was Rome. For the early church, Rome was contemporary Babylon, forcing her empirical worship on her citizens, forcing them to drink. Rome would not fall for another few hundred years. This is, this is not just talking about that Rome, but all Romes. Not just that Babylon, but all Babylons that represent the enemy of God's people. Babylon is a precursor to godless cities to come, to godless cities in our day. What is Babylon doing? The text tells us she's making the nations drink of her immorality. She handed them a cup and said, drink it. The whole world is intoxicated with Babylon's tonic. Don't you know this? <laughs> you hear it on the news. You see it on every sitcom. All across social media, we are drunk on her wine. The United States is one of the nations being spoken about here, and I can say that with confidence because it speaks of all nations throughout all times. We are drunk on sexual immorality. Now, I like this second preacher, and I like his sermon. The angel is announcing Babylon's fall as if it's already occurred. It hasn't happened yet, but it is so certain the angel can talk about it in the past tense. This day as I speak, Babylon has not fallen. As the first readers in these seven local churches here, Revelation 14 read to them, Babylon has not fallen. But Babylon will fall. The anti-God world will fall. And you are to live like Babylon's already fallen. Now it's time for us to hear the message of the third flying preacher, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if, now let me pause here. There's an if portion in verse 9 and a then portion in verse 10. If, then. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, then, that, that's, then he, that's, the he there is representing all non-Christians here in the male form. This is non-Christian men and non-Christian women. Then he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured, 
full strength into the cup of his anger. Christians have a mark on their right hand and forehead. And non-Christians have a mark on their right hand and forehead. This, this is not new material for us. We know that God marks his and Satan marks his. Satan mimics God's mark. The destiny of every person is determined by the mark he or she bears. You remember from last week that Satan's mark is the anti-Shema. This mark is not literal. Don't be looking at people's foreheads right now. This mark is not literal. It's symbolic. We have another cup in this verse. The angel implies you can't drink one cup without drinking the other cup. Here's where the if-then comes in. If you drink Babylon's tonic, then you must drink God's wrath. The two cups go together. You drink the first cup, you will be required to drink the second. Non-Christians, do you realize this angel is preaching to you? You align with this world instead of aligning with Christ and you will drink the wrath of God. Full strength, the text says. Meaning his wrath will not be watered down. The, the ancients diluted wine with water. God's anger will not be mixed. It will be undiluted. It's straight wrath, 100% fury. It's 100 proof. Where will this wrath be experienced? Hell. Verse 10b. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, a lot of you have a lot of questions there. And I'm not dodging one of them. I'm going to answer all of them when we get to the three truths. Now, I'm going to skip verses 12 and 13. I'm going to hit them when we cover the three truths at the, uh, at the end. We are now leaving the second vision and entering into the third vision. It's introduced to us the same way, kai hara'o, then I looked. With each vision, you are starting over and taking them as, as an individual unit. They are not chronological. If you were to put these three visions in chronological order, it would be vision two, then vision three, then vision one. Let's unpack vision three. The grim reapers harvesting. I'm sure many of you have heard the legend of the grim reaper. He's a figure dressed in a black robe with a black hood. You cannot see his face, but you can behold the sickle in his hand. This vision is the reality behind that legend. The truth of the matter is, we aren't given one grim reaper in the text, but two. And neither one looks like the images we have in our culture. In fact, if you're going to understand this grim reaper scene, you need to realize it's set in a farming culture, not a horror movie. In a first century farming community, those who wielded sickles in the field were called reapers. They didn't have John Deere combines to reap the harvest. They reaped it by hand. The sickle was a curved, handheld agricultural tool. The long wooden handle led to a curved, razor-sharp iron blade. And you harvested 
in a back and forth motion, cutting the crop down to be gathered by someone behind you. The earth will be harvested in two phases. A grain harvest and a grape harvest. First the earth's grain, then the earth's grapes. In my humble but accurate opinion, the, the, the first harvest is the harvest of the saints and the second harvest is the harvest of the sinners. In other words, I'm inclined to see the first harvest as positive and the second harvest as negative. All humanity divided into two camps, the lost and the saved, those with God's mark and those with Satan's mark. Or better, the language of this vision, grapes, grains, and grapes. I hold this position because the command to reap is found twice in the vision, but it's a different word for the different crops. Jesus gave a parable just like this. Wheat and tares, they grow up together, and then the harvest time, the wheat will be collected and stored, and the tares will be collected and burned. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. The first readers would immediately think of Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man coming on clouds. The first reaper is none other than Jesus Christ himself. There are three angels in this vision, but this description set Jesus, Jesus apart from them. He sits on a cloud. And this is not a means of transportation, but he sits on it as a throne. The angel brings a message from God the Father to God the Son and says, it's time to reap. This day has been planned. The hour has been scheduled. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped in the blink of an eye in an instant farmers how would you like to do harvesting that quickly <laughs> Jesus brings in 100% yields he doesn't lose any crop there's no grain left behind all 144,000 are collecting that number of course is symbolic the one enthroned on a cloud gave a mighty sweep of his sickle and he gathered all those with his mark. Verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. This second grim reaper is not Jesus. He's an angel. In fact, I don't even like the term grim reaper, so I'm going to stop using it. I do like the term the final international harvester. So that's what I'm going to call him, the final international harvester. This angel comes out of the temple. Where? The temple. He's in God's service. He received the command to reap the grapes, verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth. What did he do with it? And threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. In the first century, you gathered all the grapes into a stone vat. And the women in the community would kick off their shoes, hike up their dresses, and begin stomping and trampling the grapes. As the grapes were crushed, the juice would make its way into a drain where it was collected in large barrels. The juice from the grapes was sometimes referred to as the blood of grapes. Verse 20. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Dear non-Christian friends, if you refuse to believe this gospel, this is what awaits you. These are the grapes of wrath. Non-Christian, you will be crushed. You will be put into the vat of God's wine press. And all of this will take place where? Outside the city. What do we find later in Revelation? God's people are the city of God. We are not the grapes of wrath. Treading a wine press is an image of God's judgment in the Old Testament. You find it in Isaiah 63, Lamentations 1, Joel 3. The idea of God trampling out sinners in wrath is not popular in our culture. In fact, the Getty song that we will sing later, In Christ Alone, one denomination wanted to change the words from the wrath of God was satisfied to... The love of God was magnified, to which the Gettys would not allow. This angel says the blood of non-Christians will flow as high as the horse's bridle. That's five feet deep. This, this is a river of blood, a slaughter of exceptional proportions. The river of blood will flow for 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles. Blood five feet deep from Clarksville, Tennessee to Memphis, Tennessee. Blood five feet deep from Hopkinsville, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky. This is symbolic, of course, expressing massive, unimaginable destruction. And here's what you must not miss. When you get to chapter 19 of this book, who is it that kicks off his shoes and pulls up his clothing and tramples the non-Christians? It is Jesus himself. That's the three visions. Now the three truths. What does this text reveal about God's character? Now, there may be timing issues where you and I disagree. When this takes place in the text, there may be timing issues where you and I disagree, but we can't disagree on what this reveals about our God. And it reveals three truths. Truth number one, God is a redeeming God. I get annoyed how you have been robbed of this book by crazy and fanciful interpretations that distract from the main point, the main emphasis. You need to see that God is a redeeming God. This truth is exhibited in each of the three visions. In the first vision, verse 4 said, they have been redeemed from mankind. What's the purpose? They have been redeemed from mankind for God. God set his seal on his. He chose them. This was a mark of protection. Not physical protection, but spiritual protection. He made sure they lasted. He held them fast. He put a mark on undeserving people. And we adore him for his great love. He loved rebels. We had incalculable sins. And he redeemed us. Father, 
Come and take entire possession of us, for it is your right by purchase. God is a redeeming God in the second vision. Now let's be honest. We've all sipped from Babylon's cup. We put that tonic in our mouths. Babylon said, take, drink, and we swallowed it down. We tasted of Babylon's cup, so we should drink the second cup, the cup of God's wrath. But we Christians will never taste of that cup. You know why? Because Jesus drank it for us. All of it, down to the last dirty dregs. Jesus doesn't hand us the cup of God's wrath and say, take, drink. Instead, he hands us another cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take, drink. Which is what we will be doing when I'm finished preaching in 45 minutes. You can partake freely of Jesus' cup because he drank your cup. God is a redeeming God. In the third vision, the grapes of God's wrath, you will never be in that vat. Why? Because Jesus took your place. That whole grape-crushing scene that the text says took place outside the city gates, Jesus suffered on a cross outside the city gates. I deserve the wrath of God. Your pastor deserves the wrath of God. But will not face it. Because Jesus took, it, took my place. Christian, you deserve to be in a, a grape. You deserve to be a grape in the winepress of God's fury. But instead of blood being crushed out of your body, it will be crushed out of his on a cross. God is a redeeming God, and he purchased us for himself. Can't deny that truth from Revelation 14. Truth number two, God is a wrathful God. Now, this is laid out just like the other. This is laid out for us in each of the three visions. In the first vision, the lamb stands victorious after unleashing his wrath on Satan and finally putting him down forever. This was laid out for us in the second vision of, of verse 10 that says that the non-Christians will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the lamb. Who is managing hell in verse 10? It's not the devil. He's one of the occupants, not the manager. Demons aren't terrorizing people in hell with pitchforks and ruling with an iron fist. Jesus holds the keys that open and lock hell's gates. Torment is going up, the verse says, in his presence. They are punished before him. Jesus owns hell, not Satan. God is a wrathful God, and that's laid out for us in the third vision. We just finished the grapes of wrath, so that is fresh on your mind. No need for me to walk through that again. Now, I want to talk about hell that's found in our text in verses 10, 11, 12. I, I want to talk about hell because some of you do not believe it exists. In fact, you think, Kyle, man, you're okay, but I think you're being a bit manipulative just talking about hell. 
And I would say to you, would you grant me 10 minutes to lay out my argument for hell and then I'll just leave it on your lap and do with it as you please? I want to answer four questions. First, is hell a real place? Secondly, is hell a permanent place? Thirdly, is hell a necessary place? Fourthly, is hell a place preachers talk about to manipulate people into doing what they want? Is hell a real place? God has a place where he will pour out his wrath forever. It's called hell. Now, the best reason for believing in hell is that Jesus said it existed. He talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and more vividly. He spoke about hell in Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Matthew 25, Mark 9, Luke 13, Luke 16. Dorothy Sayers said, and I quote, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not a medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It's Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. And she says, we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Now, let me quote an atheist. Atheist Bertrand Russell, not a Christian. An atheist Bertrand Russell wrote, and I quote, there is one various serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. And that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. End quote. Jesus, more than anyone else, spoke of the fires of hell. If hell isn't real... Jesus, Jesus would have to apologize to 2,000 years of church history. And I will grant you this. If we cannot trust Jesus on his teaching of hell, we cannot trust any of his teaching. Question two, is hell a permanent place? If hell is real, then what is it like? Is it more like C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce? Or is it more like Milton's Paradise Lost? We know the graphic terms used to describe hell in the Bible. Burning, flames, darkness, worm never dying. But is that literal or metaphorical? I think it was the Spurge who said, I don't fear a metaphorical punch. <laughs> I get his point. This passage helps us with two misunderstandings about hell. Misunderstanding number one says... Hell is merely the absence of God's presence, a Christless eternity. That is true, but only part true. I was, I was listening to a sermon um, this week by Matt Chandler on, on this text, or last week, and, um, and he said, if the fire is literal, that will be debated till the cows come home, but we know hell is the absence of God. I would push back on that brother a little bit. You say, Kyle, maybe this is symbolic imagery. I mean, you yourself pointed out that symbolism is all throughout the book of Revelation. And that is true. And if Revelation was the only place that said hell 
was a place of fire, then you would have an argument. But that's not the case. Hell having fire isn't just found in apocalyptic literature. It's found all throughout the New Testament letters. Misunderstanding number two says, hell will annihilate the wicked. Now that is sometimes called conditional immortality. If the fire is literal, then it will consume, Kyle, right? If the fire is literal, then it will consume. Fire on earth consumes, so fire in hell will eventually consume. It will not be everlasting. John R. Stott, uh, one, of, one of the guys who I'd love to read after, I think wrote probably one of the top three books on um, homiletics. John R. Stott released a book at the end of his life which argued this, annihilationism, that you will be abolished forever. Herschel York said he read an unpublished book manuscript by J. Sidlow Baxter, which proved he embraced this at the end of his life. Smalley, one of my commentators on Revelation, leans this way as well. What does Revelation 14 teach us about the permanency of hell? Well, look at verse 11. I purposefully skipped verse 11 in the exposition, but it says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Whatever hell is, it's torment. It's not pleasant. It's more than just the absence of God, although that would be enough. It's more than that. Smoke from their torment will rise in the Greek. It's age after age. This, this experience of their torment continues perpetually. Whatever it represents, it lasts forever. It's hard to read annihilationism into Revelation 14. The smoke goes up forever because the fire never goes out. And it never goes out because the wrath of God is never exhausted. It's extremely difficult to get around the eternality of hell. Hell is eternal because the rejection of God is eternal. D.A. Carson says he doesn't see any evidence in the scripture that there will be any repentance in hell. They will continue in their unbelief. They will not desire to get out and worship God. They will blaspheme him for all eternity. They will keep on sinning. I read an advertisement for a church um, last, last week, two, two weeks ago, and it said, come here and you will, you will not have any of this talk of hell. That was the advertisement. And I'm thinking, shut your doors. You're not a church. Is hell a necessary place? Now, this is going to help some of you. This is going to help some of you. Is hell a necessary place? I want you, I want you to think about this, especially those of you that, that don't believe hell, hell is an actual place. Without hell, final justice would never be doled out to mass murderers child molesters, serial rapists, dictators and tyrants responsible for murdering millions? And you say, well, of course it's necessary for Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan and Vladimir Putin and Bin Laden. But see, we rarely see ourselves as deserving of hell. We cringe at the concept of hell because we do not like the thought of innocent people suffering. Well, friend, if that's your problem, let, let me ease your mind. 
Nowhere does the Bible say innocent people will spend one second in hell. Oh, man, it changed it for you forever. But what does God say in Romans 3.10? There are none righteous, not one human innocent. And this is going to be hard for some of you. But there aren't just arsonists in hell. There are firemen too. There aren't just criminals in hell. There are policemen too. There aren't just rapists in hell. There are those who were raped as well. Some of them. Robert Lifton, in his book, The Nazi Doctors, coined the um, phrase, the normalcy of evil. He talked about how evil permeates the human condition. The the Nazi doctors were, were actually very respectable, educated people who loved their families, yet thought nothing of performing sadistic experiments on Jewish children. They considered themselves good people. And we consider ourselves good people. We're wrong. Guilty people can always rationalize sin. Hell exists because sin has no excuse. No one has helped me wrap my mind around hell as much as Randy Alcorn. He said, hell exists precisely because God has committed himself to solving the problem of evil. Hell is not evil. It's a place where evil gets punished. Hell is morally good because a good God must punish evil. Now that sounds like nonsense to some, but it makes perfect sense when we recognize and hate evil for what it is. We all have our preferred ways of sinning, whether as porn addicts, materialists, Gossips, or, or the self-righteous. We're all sinners who deserve hell. We hate hell. We hate hell. Because we don't hate evil. And we hate it because we deserve it. The fear and dread of hell is understandable. But to argue against hell is to argue against justice. R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, was asked which doctrine he struggled with the most. And he replied in an instant, hell. We cannot make hell disappear simply because the thought of it makes us uncomfortable. We lower the stakes of redemption and minimize Christ's work on the cross when we deny hell. If we were as holy as God and we knew a fraction of what he knows, we would realize hell is just and right. We should weep over hell, but never ever deny it. Hamilton reminds us, hell is about the worth and majesty of God. If you understand what it means for God to be God, you will understand why hell lasts forever. If hell is offensive to you, it's because you have not yet realized how significant God is. End quote. Let's answer that last question. Is hell a place preachers talk about to manipulate people into doing what they want? Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on the wrath of God and and the topic of hell. and it, It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In it, he compared us to spiders hanging over the pit of hell. 
And it said that his, his congregants would lift their feet off the floor for fear of falling in hell. He preached hell hot. He did not title his sermon. People who have made some bad choices in the hands of a loving God. He did not title his sermon, Victims in the Hands of a Therapeutic God. He did not title his sermon, Negative Thinkers in the Hands of a Positive God. But Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And you say, Kyle, man, what, what you're doing is what he did. You're doing the same thing Edwards did, but not as good. <laughs> Jesus didn't seem to be against motivating people with the threat of hell. Let me repeat that. Jesus didn't seem to be against motivating people with the threat of hell. I am not manipulating you. Fear of eternal judgment can be a sanctified tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit for those on the fence of indecision to fully submit to the Lordship of Christ. Hell is nothing to be gleeful over or seem happy that people are going there, nor should it be dealt with in a cold intellectual way. I think it was, it was uh, Robert Murray McShane who asked a friend, well, what did you preach last Sunday? The man said, I, I preached on hell. To which McShane replied, were you enabled to preach it with tears? God is a redeeming God. God is a wrathful God. And the last truth, this will be shorter. You're welcome for that. The last truth, God is calling you to endure. Christians, God is calling you to endure. This truth, like all the others, is taught in each vision. The first vision, remember the three demonstrative pronouns? These have not defiled themselves. These follow the lamb wherever he goes. God is keeping their eye on the prize, telling them, never give up resisting Satan. It's never better to join the world. Flee from its wicked pleasures. You will have to pay a price but you will do it in the name of fidelity to the gospel. Church, are you enduring or are you drifting away? Are you loving your job more than you love your Lord? Are you loving your children more than you love your Savior? God is calling you to endure in the first vision and God is calling you to endurance in the second vision. I skipped verse 12 in our exposition and I want to hit it now. Verse 12 says, so plainly, <laughs> here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What do they keep? Commandments of God and, and their, their faith in Jesus. This vision about the three flying multilingual preachers wasn't just a message for non-Christians, but also for Christians, and it's proven in verse 12. It was a call for their endurance, a call for their moral purity and theological purity, purity in their belief and purity in their behavior. The word endurance gives us the doctrine of Christian perseverance. One of my mentor pastors explained it this way. He said, from God's perspective, the perseverance of the saints means that God will not lose any of his children. From the believer's perspective, the perseverance of the saints means that the genuine believer will persevere in his relationship with Christ to the very end. 
From God's perspective, God will not abandon his children. From the believer's perspective, they will not abandon God. While obedience is not a condition for salvation, obedience is evidence of salvation. God is calling you to endure in the third vision. Christ harvesting grain with his sickle. Christ harvesting you. That day is coming. And because that day is coming, do not waste your life seeking promotions or social media media followings or a big house or a nice car or the finest clothes. Don't live for that. Live for the day when you will be reaped. Live as if your books are going to be audited. We are waiting for harvest season.